0: We're back in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to cover some ground today. You guys are going to be amazed. We started Hebrews on October 28th of last year. We finished three verses. We're going to cover some ground today, though. But let's start reading just as a refresher, just as a reminder. You guys as a congregation are going to know this first chapter of Hebrews so well. You guys are going to own this. It says in Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we've dissected all that very carefully. Now we get to some new ground today. Verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that name. That name that is above every name. That beautiful name, that name by which men and women are saved, that name at which every knee will bow and tongue will confess that you are Lord. We thank you, God, for loving us. We thank you that you're a Savior, that for so many of us, you've come and you grabbed us out of the pit of despair. You've taken us out of the miry clay and you set our feet upon the rock. You've taken us from places of brokenness and fear and failure. You've brought us into wholeness and to love and security with you. Thank you for being a wonderful and awesome God. And we ask that now as we open up the scriptures that Jesus, you'd reveal more of yourself to us. We want to be, as a church, students of your word. Students of your word. We want to rightly divide the word. We want to understand it. We want to uh, not fall into error. We, in fact, want to be able to defend the faith once and for all delivered against error. We want to know heresy when we see it. We want to see error and, and uh, occultic misinterpretations of Scripture when we see it. We want to set right your doctrine in our community, Jesus. But more than students of your word, we want to be lovers of you. And so as we become students, expand the capacity of our heart to experience who you are, Jesus. We want more of you in our lives, more of your beauty, your presence, your power, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, your love. Work these things in us. Jesus, become preeminent in our hearts today. Bigger. Be huger in our hearts, Lord. We ask that everything else of our own selves and our psyche and the world and all this other stuff would fade away and be quiet. And you'd become real big and awesome in our sight today. And Lord, please help me to communicate these wonderful truths. Help me to do it in a way that is right and that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we study the book of Hebrews today, and we're going to study, I want to remind us of the context. We've always got to be aware of the context whenever we study the Bible, because you understand that what we have in the New Testament were documents that were written some 2,000 years ago, and then in the Old Testament, even older, and they were written to be understandable to the people that received them at that time. So just for the New Testament example, it was written to be understandable to people that lived in that world 2,000 years ago. It was a different world. There were different cultures. They had different backgrounds and different leanings and different influences and different languages. That's why sometimes we've got to commit ourselves to a study of the word because it's written to be understandable to them. It is still God's word to us, but it wasn't written in this century. So that's why we've got to commit ourselves to a little bit of study, to understand it fully, to apply it to our lives. And the first thing that we do to endeavor to understand the Bible is see the context in which the portion you're looking at was written. Now, there's a context to the book of Hebrews. It's very important to the whole understanding of the book. And that is this. It's between between 64 and 70 AD is the time when Hebrews is written. In 64 AD, Rome burnt. The Caesar in Rome at the time, the ruler of the inhabited earth was Nero. He was a ruler of the inhabited earth. And under his watch, Rome burnt down. And many of the Roman citizens and even the Senate began to blame Nero for the fires. He was somewhat of a nutcase. If you read history, you'll find that out. And they began to blame him for the fires. Nero didn't like that. And so he looked for a scapegoat. And he blamed the blazes on the Christians. The Christians had become a target at this time. Prior to about 64 AD, they were considered by the Roman Empire, the ruling authority of the world, they were considered to be merely a sect of Judaism. Judaism was a government-sanctioned religion. A government-sanctioned religion. The Romans have many gods, And they had no problem taking on new gods. When they went and conquered other nations, they would just assimilate their gods and their religions into theirs because the Romans figured if we conquer this nation, then the gods of their nation must be submitting themselves to the Roman gods. So they had no problem letting other peoples even worship their gods once they were a conquered people. They were very liberal about religious expression. Judaism, though, didn't really fit into their acceptance of other religions because Judaism was monotheistic. It believed in one true God. And the Romans believed in many gods. What the Romans did with the Jews was sort of grandfather them in. They said, okay, we see that you guys are very, very zealous about your one true God. So while we're worshiping all these other gods, we're going to let you worship your God. And and they they, they made it a government-sanctioned religion for a time, Judaism. They were allowed to worship the way that they wanted to and do their sacrifices and have their synagogues and their temple and their services. And in fact, they were exempt from sacrificing to Caesar. All the other people in the Roman Empire had to sacrifice to Caesar in one way or another. But the Jews were exempt from it. They did have to make sacrifices on behalf of Caesar But they didn't have to sacrifice to Caesar. So they had some favor in the Roman Empire. Christianity springs up after Jesus, of course, and is viewed as a sect of Judaism because there were always various sects coming from Judaism. And they just said, oh, another Jewish thing, no big deal. But then around the year 60, the Roman Empire started to notice that there was a difference You see, the Jews were pretty ethnocentric. There was the occasional Gentile that wanted to uh, uh, convert to Judaism, but primarily speaking, the Jews were the Jews, and they had their religion. But all of a sudden, in Christianity, you had every tongue, tribe, and nation. All of a sudden, you had all these different people from all these different backgrounds coming together to worship this God that they called Jesus. And not only that, but you had all this different social strata coming together. It seems that their religion shattered class divisions. It seems that slaves and masters were able to come together on the Lord's Day on Sunday and worship God together as brothers shoulder to shoulder, equal before the Lord. It seems that in the scene Christianity, there was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but they were all one in Christ Jesus. And the Romans were perplexed by that unity. And ultimately, they were threatened by that unity. The Romans, being the world power, were very uh, paranoid. And anytime something might have come off as subversive, they were pretty quick to try to put it down. And because Christians were united, and they were meeting together, and they were worshiping this one God that was different from Judaism, they begin to discern, it, it seemed subversive to them. So Christians became a target in the Roman Empire to one degree or another. And they became a very convenient scapegoat for Nero to say, hey, it wasn't me that burnt down Rome, it was the Christians. And that unleashed government sanctioned persecution toward Christianity, and it was gnarly persecution. Uh, church history or tradition tells us that both Paul and Peter were martyred for their faith during the persecution under the Caesar Nero. so it 's big time persecution. and what we have here in the book of Hebrews is a document that was written to some Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, formerly just Jews, now they 've become Christians who are living in this Roman Empire, and and they're beginning to feel threatened for their lives. Christianity became religio illicita, an illegal religion. And practicing it was punishable by death. So now they're afraid. They thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom and rule and reign. But they see that Rome still is ruling and reigning in the inhabited world. Now their religion is illegal. They're afraid. Their Christianity isn't working out the way that they thought it would. They thought it would be different. They thought this is a Jewish Messiah, the son of David. He's going to establish a Davidic throne, and he's going to rule and reign. But now they find themselves as the outcasts, rejected by the Jews, rejected by the Romans, rejected by general society marginalized, outcasted, even hunted. So the Holy Spirit then prompts the writer of the book of Hebrews, unknown to us, we can speculate, but we don't know, to write this document to tell these Hebrew Christians to stand firm in their faith, saying to them, don't give up. The story's not over yet. The situation looks bleak, bleak on the world scene, but it's not over yet. Hold on in difficult times. And we see that throughout the New Testament. The Bible's always telling us that persevere in trials and in tribulations. Stand firm. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Hold firm to your faith. Be strong in the faith. Be sober and of good courage. Be alert. All these things we hear in the New Testament. And so he's writing to them to establish them in their faith because some of them were leaving it. Christianity's not working out. I don't want to be killed. I'm over this thing. And some of them were walking away from the faith. And note very carefully, note very carefully for your own life, the strategy as ordained by the Holy Spirit to get them to continue in the faith. It's seen in the book of Hebrews. All the book of Hebrews does is exalt Jesus Christ above everything and everybody else. That's all the book of Hebrews it tells us that Jesus and the covenant that he came to give us is better than everything and everyone else. The strategy to get God's people through difficult times is to get more of Jesus into their lives. Now that's true for us today. And we're going to have difficult times. (laughs) Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And we're going to have difficult times, increasingly so as Christians, as the days progress. And the prescription, the remedy for times of difficulty, is more Jesus. Amen? But see, we have the tendency to look other places. We have the tendency to be praise the Lord and happy, clappy when everything is good. But oftentimes when difficulty comes, we start to look for a backup plan, a safety net, a plan B, something that used to work back then, something I was doing then where everything was okay, or or something that's tangible and sure, and that was the temptation for the Hebrews. And what was tangible and sure and seemed to work out previously was Judaism. And so these people that this book are written to are starting to go back toward the old covenant and the old things thereof in Judaism, going back to the prophets, That's why he says Jesus is the full and final revelation. Tempted to go back to the sacrifices. That's why he says Jesus is the sacrifice. Tempted to go back to those old things, but the New Testament here in Hebrews chapter 1 is exalting the person of Jesus Christ, merely saying to them, if you will get more of Jesus in your life, you will not be so swayed by the things of this world. That's a truth for us today. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 tells them that Jesus is a full and final revelation of God. That he's the heir of all things, he's the creator of all things, he's a radiance of God's glory, he's the exact representation of God's nature, he upholds all things by his power, he and he alone has made purification for our sins, and that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. There are eight excellencies of Jesus Christ given to us in Hebrews chapter 1 thus far. There's going to be more, but that's eight in the first three verses. In those eight, we see the trifold ministry of the person of Jesus Christ. The trifold ministry. Jesus throughout the Bible is presented as prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all of those. Like Isaiah, he was a prophet, but he wasn't a priest, nor was he a king. Aaron was a priest, but he wasn't a prophet or a king. David was a king, but he wasn't necessarily a prophet or a priest. Jesus comes... And he fulfills all those ministries of Israel as prophet, priest, and king. And so we see him in these first three verses as the prophet, the final spokesman for God, the ultimate one. We see him as the priest, the one who atones for our sins and intercedes on our behalf. And we see him as the king, the one who is controlling and sustaining the universe and the one who is enthroned. Now, There's one more excellency that's given to us, and it's in verse 4. And it says there that Jesus is much better than even the angels. There's another excellency of Christ, that he is better than the angels. Now, to our ears, it's kind of like, no, duh, right? You're like, wow, really, is the whole Bible study going to be about this? I mean, for sure, in my mind, no matter, Jesus is better than the angels. Why is that a big deal? Why does he go from proclaiming all these amazing things, a full and final revelation, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, upholding and sustaining the world, seated at the right hand of majesty, by the way, better than the angels. Why was that just not a duh to these first century Jewish Christians? Well, here's why. In the Judaism of the time, that's called intertestamental Judaism. It's a Judaism that developed in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It had some distinctives. And one of them was that angels was, were very big in their Hebraic consciousness. Angels were huge in their mind. The Old Testament has a lot to say about angels. There's about 108 direct references to angels in the Old Testament. But what the rabbis of Israel did was to take those things and exaggerate them to take those ideas about angels and extrapolate them, to really make larger, uh, to embellish what the Old Testament had to say about angels. And so they believe that angels were sort of a council in heaven uh, that God worked with. They would believe that's what's referred to in the creation account when God says, come, let us make man in our image. They would say that was the angelic council. We would say, no, that's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. But they would say, we're not made in the image of angels. Duh. We're made in the image of God, so that's not what it's talking about. They say then that angels would administer the creation of God, that there'd be angels that would look out over the sea and the waves, that would look out over the mountains, and ones that would look out over the winds and all these various aspects of creation. In fact, they so extrapolated that idea out that in the Talmud, a collection of Jewish writings, important part of the oral law, there's a, a saying that says this, Every blade of grass has its own angel that bends over it and whispers, grow, grow. That's how big angels were in their mind. Every blade of grass had its own angel. Angels were involved in everything. They were extremely important in the Hebraic mindset. But even more pertinent to our topic this morning is this. Angels, now this is not... Jewish mythology, this is what the New Testament says. Angels were involved in delivering the old covenant to Moses at Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he got the law from God, right? He got the law there. Well, somehow angels were involved in that. Don't ex- understand exactly how, but somehow angels were a mediator, a mediator in God communicating to humanity. It says that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. New Living Translation. God gave his laws to angels to give to Moses, who was a mediator between God and the people. We also read of this in Acts chapter 7 verses 51 through 53. So God had a law and some way he gave it to the angels to give to Moses and then Moses gave it to the people. Do you see inherent in that is two degrees of separation? The goal is for humanity to be connected to God. That was the goal of creation. But there's two degrees of separation there. There's the angels representing God and the Moses representing humanity. And they connected the giving of the law. Well, this was huge for the Jews. The Jews were like, okay, wait a minute, the law and Moses. I mean, if you understand Jewish mindset, the law and Moses, that's like the biggest deal ever, the law and Moses. And if the angels were involved in giving the law to Moses, well, they just figured that the angels were the greatest thing in the world. They just figured that angels were huge and incredibly important and they had the highest regard for them, so much so that at times, various sects of Judaism were guilty of falling into angel adoration or even angel worship. And we see that even infiltrating the Christian church in the book of Colossians. Now, remember, because their Christianity wasn't panning out the way they thought it would, under the persecution of Nero, some of these Jewish Christians are tempted to go back to the things of Judaism. And one of the big things in Judaism at the time were the angels. He already addressed the prophets. Don't go back to Jewish prophets. Jesus is a full and final revelation. He already addressed the priests. Don't go back to the priests. Jesus is the one who made atonement for our sins. He already addressed the kings. Don't look for a Jewish king. Jesus is the king. He's the one who rules and reigns and sustains. And so now the author of Hebrews goes after angels. Don't start looking for angels to bail you out of the persecution of Nero. Don't go back into that old concept, that old theology, that old ideology. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus being God in the flesh, the God-man, then removes the degrees of separation of the angels and Moses, removes the penalty and the guilt and the burden of the law through the work of the cross, and brings us into direct connection with the person of God. Yeah, that's good news. That's really good news. And so he's wanting to remind them that you have everything that you need in the person of Jesus Christ. And the whole thesis of the writer of Hebrews is that the new covenant that we have with Jesus is better than the old covenant that they had with Moses. So if he could show that the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, is superior to the ones who mediated the old covenant, the angels, then the new way is better than the old. And stop thinking about going back to the old life because you have everything that you need in the person of Christ Jesus. Right? So he says there in verse 4, Having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Having become as much better than angels. Why does it say having become? Having become. Hasn't Jesus always been better than the angels? Why does it say having become? Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says, but we do see him, that is Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So there is then this concept that Jesus in the incarnation was made for a little while, a little lower than the angels in that he tasted death. He became a man, and he tasted death. And so he became, for a little while in the incarnation, lower than angels, in rank, in order. Now, what he's then saying here in verse 4 is after that, Jesus became, once again, much better than the angels. The pre-incarnate Jesus always much better than the angels. He's a creator of the angels. We'll talk about that next week. But in humanity... He's made lower for a while to the point of death on the cross. But then, remember, verse 4 is set in the context of the end of verse 3. Verse 3 says, And he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're talking about the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification, and the exaltation. And he's saying, listen, the story wasn't over at the cross. We don't have a dead Jesus hanging on the cross who in his humanity was lower than the angels. We have a resurrected Lord Yes, we have a resurrected Lord who has ascended, who is exalted, who is glorified, and who is once again much better than the angels. So he's trying to tell them, don't go back to those old ways. Now, this is pertinent for you and I today because there's somebody that knocks on all of our doors sooner or later named Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. We do not believe that Jesus was a created being. They believe that he was created as Michael the archangel, and then at a certain point in time, Michael the archangel ceased to be, and he became Jesus, and then later on, he became like a glorified Michael, but that he's created. He's important in creation. He's the first creation, but nonetheless, they say that he's created, and this is one of the verses that they will use where it says, having become as much better than the angels, and what helps them in their case, unfortunately, is a King James translation. The King James doesn't say having become, like my new American standard here. It says being made. And so that sounds then like Jesus was created at some point in time. They have their own translation called the New World Translation that would reflect that as well. On occasion, when you're studying the Bible, it's helpful to look in the Greek. And we have tools at the bookstore. Anybody could look back at that stuff. You don't know, have to know Greek to study the meaning behind some of these words. Having made, as the King James translates it, and as Jehovah's Witnesses would purport, says Jesus is created. Having made, to make, in the Greek is the word poeo. To make, in the Greek, poieo means to make. You know what to make means, to make. Poeo in the Greek. That is not the word used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. The word used in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 is ginomai, which is a very distinct word, which means to become. It's different than to make. So we do not have, in Hebrews chapter 1, anything in the Bible saying that Jesus was ever created. We have it speaking about his humanity, his submission to the Father and being made lower than the angels, and yet his co-equality with God. And then we have his resurrection, ascension, glorification, and exaltation, where he is once again much better than the angels, having become, genomai, not being made, but having become. Much better than the angels, as the exalted Lord of Jesus Christ. So next time they knock on your door, you have a little bit of ammunition. Now, the next phrase says that he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. What does that mean, that he has inherited a more excellent name? From what I am able to discern, there is this concept in which Jesus is given a new name by the Father After the ascension, there's many names for Jesus. Emmanuel, Jesus, which is just Yeshua, and the Hebrew is a common name at that time. Son of God, Son of David, the bright morning star. There's all sorts of different names for Jesus. Faithful and true, so on and so forth. But there seems to be this sense of this other name, and let's try to get at it. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. He's inherited a more excellent name. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's all really good. We'll have to restrain ourselves here. But we'll just pick it up in verse 11, okay? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is that? That's Jesus. Notice he's called here faithful and true. Now look at this description of him. And his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems. And look, look, look. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Interesting. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's called faithful and true in the previous verse. There's another name. There's all these names in the Old Testament, all these titles in the new, hundreds of titles for Jesus. But here at the second coming, there's this new mysterious name. He's got a name written on him and nobody knows. That's really cool, right? Okay, let's continue to look at it. Verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's not the name that nobody knows. We know that name, but there's another name. So far, he's been called faithful and true and the Word of God and nobody knows. Let's read on just because it's cool. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who's that? That's us coming back with the Lord to rule and reign with him at the second coming. Isn't it cool? Jesus is on a big white horse, cavallo blanco. A white horse, he's on cavallo blanco. And we're on little horses behind him, (laughs) riding behind him as he comes. I love it. And look what it says in the next verse. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Oh, it's different than the first coming, isn't it? The first coming, he came on a burro. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah, Luke 22, he came on a burro at the the triumphal entry. There at the beginning of Passover week, he came on a burro to Israel. He came down the Mount of Olives on a little burro. When he comes again, it's Caval blanco. <laughs> Orale, blanco. He comes again on a big white horse, and it's different. The first time he came as a suffering servant. He came as a suffering servant, as a man of sorrows. This time he comes, and his eyes are like fire. And he's got a crown. And his robe is dipped in blood. I don't know what that means, but it's gnarly. And he's faithful and true, and he's the word of God, and he's got a name that nobody knows. And from his mouth comes a word of God that defeats his enemies at that time. And who is he? Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming again, and he's not coming as a suffering servant to be submitted, but he's coming as a ruling and reigning king who conquers. He's coming again. And this is beginning to enter the mind of the Hebrew Christians as they're reading this letter that was written to them. They get to verse 4, and it talks about he has inherited a much better name. And these things are beginning to come to mind. And then we go to Philippians chapter 2, as we continue to discover the mysterious name. Philippians chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 8. Speaking of Jesus, it says in Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, notice it's not the name of Jesus it's in above every name. That's one of his names. But there's this other name in the mix. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're told here that he's given a name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, also one of his names. Every knee should bow. Now, in my translation, every knee shall bow is in little capitals. Is it in your translation as well? That means that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Here is one of the greatest tips you'll ever have on studying the New Testament. When you see a place in the New Testament that's quoting the Old, go back and read that whole passage of Scripture from the Old. Not just the little part that's being quoted. Read it in context. Because... We have something called chapters and verses in our Bibles. They were added much later on. They're very helpful to us. They're good. They're not evil. They buggy-wide them out. It doesn't matter. They're not the Word of God. They're there to help us navigate through the Word of God. But in the ancient manuscripts and in scrolls and so on and so forth, those weren't there. And so when people were teaching the Word of God, they couldn't say, open up to Isaiah 53. What do you mean? Instead, they would say something like, he was pierced for our transgressions. And the Jewish mind would go, okay, that part in Isaiah where it's talking about that one, you see? That's the way that they would do it. And so in the context of the Bible here, most of the writers of the New Testament being Jewish, when a little part of the Old Testament is quoted and applied to Jesus, there's always a larger context behind it, and if we go back and look at it, it'll help us discover a little bit more. You should always do that. So let's go and look at it. This quotation, every knee should bow, is from Isaiah 45. Let's go there. Now in Isaiah chapter 45, we have God talking about the fact that He will deliver his people. He's prophesying in the book of Isaiah that they will go into the Babylonian captivity. And in verse 1, there's this prophecy about someone named Cyrus. A hundred years before King Cyrus was ever born, God prophesied that God would raise him up, that his people, the Jews, might be released to go back to Israel after being in exile. A hundred fifty years before it happened, a hundred years before the birth of King Cyrus, he's prophesied about. So we have here God talking about the fact that he's faithful to deliver his people from oppressors, okay? In Isaiah 45, he's faithful to deliver his people. And when he expresses his faithfulness, he couches it in the phraseology of his supremacy. God is speaking in Isaiah 45, and he's telling his people, Israel, that he is supreme over any other power. So now we pick it up with that context in verse 20 of Isaiah 45. God speaking, it says, "'Gather yourselves and come. "'Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. "'They have no knowledge, "'who carry about their wooden idol "'and pray to a God who cannot save.'" Okay, he's talking about the other nations that go after false gods, idols. Verse 21, he calls them out. He challenges them. Verse 21, the God of Israel says, "'Declare and set forth your case. "'Indeed, let them consult together "'who has announced this from old.'" Who has long since declared it? In other words, who knows things before they come to pass? Who's the one who declares it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except for me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other God. I have sworn by myself, you can't swear by anybody else, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, here we go, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. There is the Old Testament portion that's imported into Philippians chapter 2. What Paul does in Philippians chapter 2 is apply to Jesus that which was spoken of by God himself about himself as the only God of Israel and the only God of the universe. Paul says that was about Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Now, there is a picture of the Trinity. Verse 24 they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. They will say of me, only in the Lord are, my, are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. Do you see that? They will say of me, only the Lord is righteousness and strength. Only the Lord saves. And then they will come to him. We have intertrinitarian communication happening here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. co-eternal, Coeternal, coexisting in one as God. What does it mean to be God? To be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have here a picture of the Trinity, but I want you to notice, tying into our context, he says this. They will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. What do we have in the book of Hebrews? We have part of Israel, Jews who have become Christians, who are dealing with an emperor that's mad at Jesus. He's persecuting the church, but according to Jesus Christ, when you're persecuting the church, who are you really persecuting? Acts chapter 9, Paul's going to Damascus to kill some Christians to persecute the church. The risen Lord knocks him off his horse and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't think I'd mess with you. You're messing with me. You mess with my church, you mess with me. There's this concept that if you mess with the bride, you better be afraid of the man. And we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And he is the bridegroom. They will come to him and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. What is the name that he has inherited? It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. The author of Hebrews is reminding these frightened Jewish Christians, you've already got the one in Jesus. There's nothing to go back to. He has inherited a greater name. It is a name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the God of Israel. And anybody that messes with him will be put to shame. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Basically what he's telling them, is in the end Jesus wins I know times are difficult I know that Nero is a Caesar the emperor the king of the inhabited earth and that he's threatening your earthly existence but your citizenship is not on earth your citizenship is in heaven and in the end Jesus wins He's reminding them of the fact that in the end, Jesus wins. And so his exhortation throughout the book is going to be, hold on, stand firm, don't give up, don't give in, don't slide back. Now, in our lives, that's important. Because we have a world that is getting weird, do we not? We have a world that is getting weird. As weird as it was under Nero at that time, there's much worse persecution happening in the world right now than happened under Nero. You must understand that. In places like Saudi Arabia, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Sudan, China, Eritrea. There's much worse persecution happening in the world than we're happening in here. And what the Bible tells us is that in the end, Jesus wins. He comes on a big white horse and opens a big can. In the end, Jesus Wins. So the exhortation for our faith is don't give up, don't bail out, don't fall back. Jesus wins. The story isn't over yet. That's important for us as we look at world history and the big stage of things, but that's important in the daily struggles, the minutiae of our life, because you know what? Jesus wins in those two. He conquered sin, death, and the devil. He's gonna conquer the Antichrist to be sure. But he's already conquered sin, death, and the devil. And so, in the small things of our lives, those struggles, those things that you say that you wish you had never said, those attitudes you have about him or her that you wish you didn't have these attitudes, those things that you look at or you touch that you can't believe you did that again, in the end, Jesus wins. The protocol is to get more Jesus, he's the winner. The protocol is to hold fast to him. He's a conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lord is a warrior. He will utter a war cry. Yes, he will shout and prevail over his enemies, Isaiah said. In the big things of the world, Jesus wins, and in the little struggles of our lives, Jesus wins. And here's the clincher. By default, then, we win. We are his people. If he wins, we win. At the end, when he conquers, we come with him. Caballo Blanco, he Pequeño blanco, right? The little horses? He's on the big one. We We win. And in the daily struggles, the Bible says we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. More than conquerors. And the word there in the Greek means one who puts victory on display. Jesus already got the victory for us. A Christian puts it on display in his life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the book of Hebrews is very pertinent for us today. Let's go back there and look at another verse. Verse 5 Now, he's going to begin to reason about him. He's still talking about the angel thing. We're going to be on the angel thing for a few weeks because he finishes the whole chapter talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And what he does is he uses the Old Testament to reason with these Hebrew Christians. Now, that was scripture at the time. The New Testament was not yet fully written, it wasn't codified, it wasn't canonized. Scripture at the time was the Old Testament. Okay? I want you to notice that what he does when he's encountering error in their ways, they're they're about to go back and you know slide into the old things, leaving Jesus. He counters, he speaks into it, he reasons with them from the scriptures. We've got to be these same kind of people. We've got to be, be people that, that have the mind of Christ on a situation. They could think the thoughts of God on a situation. The problem is, well, one problem is that we live in a biblically illiterate society. We live in a biblically illiterate society, more so than in the past several hundred years. Biblically, but that's that's not that's society. The real problem is that we have in America a biblically illiterate church. That's where we're really in trouble. We are really in trouble with that. We have a biblically illiterate church. George Barna said that 11 percent of Christians read their Bible at all. 11 percent of Christians. That means that we have a Christianity which is biblically illiterate in America which means we have a really big problem. We have a really big problem. That means we have people who call themselves after Christ's name that aren't thinking Christ's thoughts. That aren't walking in Christ's ways. That aren't upholding the truth about Christ. That aren't acting according to the righteousness and the standard and the word and the wisdom of God but rather calling themselves Christians but living like everybody else. Because we have a biblically illiterate church. That's a real problem. We need to remedy that. My one life goal, other than loving Jesus, my wife, and my kids, is to see a church that knows the Word of God and loves the God of the Word. We can overcome this thing. But you see, if you're going to think the thoughts of God, you've got to get into the Word of God. Now, there are Christians around the world who don't have the Bible. Because of persecution, they have no Bible. And they're getting along just fine. Why? The Holy Spirit. And the early church was just fine with the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible, the New Testament was written to correct some things that were getting off, so on and so forth. So we do have the Holy Spirit. But I'm sorry, you do have a Bible, so you are now accountable. And you can't just say it's me and the Spirit because you've been given the Word. It's you and the Spirit and the Word. And we need wisdom for our lives. I need the mind of Christ. When my son disobeys at seven years old, I need the mind of Christ, how to to discipline him and how to disciple him. My daughter who's three that has a different spirit than my son, a wholly different person. Wow, I I need the mind of Christ and the wisdom of God. My marriage, I need more Jesus in my life for my marriage because I'm a selfish man and the scriptures call me to love my wife like Christ loves a church. And sometimes the train comes off the track with that. And so I need more Jesus in my life. But where do I find him? In the word of God. If I'm not in the word of God, what do I have? I have the wisdom of man and the anger of man, and that does not achieve the righteousness of God. And if we have a whole church in America that's moving in the wisdom of man and the anger of man, then we have a church that is void of the righteousness of God, and it shouldn't be called the church. You got a problem. So he's going to reason with these Hebrew Christians from the Scriptures, which is something we as Christians should endeavor to do to be able to reason from the Scriptures. Now look what it says in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he, God the Father, ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? To which of the angels did he ever say? Well, it's a rhetorical question. He never said to any of the angels, Thou art my son. We did a study a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, from verse 2, on what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique Son of God. Collectively in the Old Testament, angels were called the sons of God. Rulers were sometimes called a son of God. Israel was called the sons of God, and we as Christians are called the sons of God. But Jesus is a unique Son of God, and he's saying that God never said to any of the angels, I, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now, there's a quotation of the Old Testament again. It's Psalm 2. We don't have time to go to Psalm 2, so that's gonna become homework for you. You guys later on are gonna go read Psalm 2. And you're gonna see there that what we have in Psalm 2 is the accession of a king. A king is going to the throne, and it's a celebration for this king, the king probably being Solomon. Solomon. And it talks about how this king will rule over the nations. And when you begin to read it, you'll see something interesting. You'll be reading, and you'll go, yeah, I can see how that's just a normal king, King Solomon, uh, in his accession to the throne. But then you'll go, wait a minute, but there's something more. That can't just be Solomon. That's also speaking about Jesus. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? And that trips us out because we're not used to that unless you read your Bible. That's totally normal. And one breath it'll be talking about David, and the next sentence, bam, is talking about the Messiah. See, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. And so you'll read Psalm 2, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, King Solomon, King Solomon. Whoa, Jesus. (laughs) King Solomon's Jesus. King Solomon, whoa. And and so that'll help us, give us a little context to understand. So we have the ascension of King Solomon or some king. We're not sure who it is there in Psalm 2. But it is also looking forward to the king of kings. And it'll say there in Psalm 2, verse 7, today I have begotten thee. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now this king is already an adult. It's not talking about him being created. It's not talking about him being born. When it's saying begotten, it's talking about him rising to a certain office. And it's applied to Jesus here. So it's not talking about Jesus being created. It's not talking about the birth of Jesus here, necessarily. It's talking about his office as the Savior of the world, particularly as it's declared through his resurrection. Romans 1.4 says Jesus was declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. So there we see the author of Hebrews taking the Old Testament, telling us that it's about Jesus Christ, and in context of Hebrews, it's talking about, remember, the ascension, which was preceded by the resurrection. And then it says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This was never said to any of the angels. Here we have another Old Testament quotation, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I want you to go read 2 Samuel 7 later on. In 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that God is making some promises to King David about his kingdom and about his throne. And he says that there will be another one who will sit on your throne. And when you read it in immediate context, you're like, oh yeah, that's Solomon and his other sons who are going to sit upon his throne. And some of the characteristics will fit. And then all of a sudden it starts to talk about an everlasting kingdom. You're saying, wait a minute, that wasn't David. That, that, that wasn't Solomon. That's the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the New Testament reveals what's concealed in the old. And so he says, to which of the angels did I ever say I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me? He said it concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, back in 2 Samuel. Now let's finish with verse 6. It's a very short one. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. This is speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he again comes into the world. Now here's another word that the cults, or another verse, that the cults have had fun with. Because it says firstborn. Or as the King James puts it, another bad translation, first begotten. Firstborn. Firstborn sounds like they were born. It sounds like maybe Jesus was created. That's not what it's saying. Here's one of those times where knowing a little bit of Greek or looking it up helps you. The word here in Greek is prototakos. Prototakos, firstborn. Always in the Bible and in biblical times. It's not speaking about chronology of a birth date or of a birth at all. It's speaking about power, authority, and position. The firstborn, the one who had power, authority, and position. You see, the cults will take this and say, look, Jesus was born, Jesus was created, and then he created other things, but he's the first of creation. No. He's the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1 says. Firstborn, same word, prototakos, meaning the one who has authority, position, and power over. And you might say to me, well, that sounds like a Christian just, you know, made it be that, because that's pretty convenient. I mean, the word is firstborn. Well, wait a minute. How's it used elsewhere in the Bible? In Psalm 89, verse 27, King David is called the firstborn. Anybody know anything about King David? Was he an only child? No. No. He had a bunch of brothers, didn't he? Was he the oldest one? No, in fact, the cool part about the story was he was the youngest one, wasn't he? And yet in Psalm 89, he's called the firstborn. Oh, the Bible's so full of errors. No, it's not. When the Bible says firstborn, (prototokos) in the New Testament in the Greek, it's talking about the first one in rank, authority, and position. So when he brings again the one who has all the rank, authority, and position into the world, he says, and let the angels of God worship him. Now, the word world there is not the word that's usually used for world, cosmos, which means everything. It's a different one. The word is oikumene. Oikumene. It means inhabited earth. Some of your translations have that wonderfully. When he brings a firstborn into the inhabited earth, why is that important? Can you hang with me a couple more minutes? Yeah? Why is it important that he chooses a word inhabited earth. He could have said when he brings him into the cosmos, all of creation, but he says when he brings him into the inhabited earth. He says the firstborn, the one who has priority, position, power, and authority. When he comes into the inhabited earth, why is that important? Oikumene, why is that important inhabited earth? Because there was another one who was at that moment in the life of these Hebrew Christians claiming to be the king over all the inhabited earth. This was said of Nero when he was crowned, quote, and the expectation and the hope of the world, oikumene, inhabited earth, the expectation and the hope of the inhabited earth has has been declared emperor. The good genius and source of all good things, Nero, has been declared Caesar. You see, there's someone else who claimed to be first in importance, who claimed to be the ruler of the inhabited earth, someone who claimed to be the one who is a genius and the source of all good things. And he was making life difficult for the Christians. He's Nero, he's Caesar, he's the ruler of the inhabited earth. And the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute, you guys, I know you're afraid, I know it's difficult, I know life isn't all that you thought it would be, but hold on, a firstborn is coming, rather the firstborn us the one in priority, power, and position, and he's coming to the inhabited earth. He's coming to what is now known as Rome, Rome, and he will be the one that rules and reigns. This Nero that is threatening you, there's one who is greater than him, and you already have him in the person of Jesus Christ, so don't fall back into the old life, and don't look for some other safety net, and don't look for a way out. Cling to the person of Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs you. Cling to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that's huge. That was huge then, and that's huge now because we know that when Jesus comes again, He comes to a revived Roman Empire under the leadership of Antichrist, and He defeats them there in Revelation chapter 19. So Jesus is coming to the inhabited earth, and He's going to rule and reign. But don't forget this: He also is already in the minutia of our lives, because He said before He ascended in Matthew 28, "And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." I'm with you always. Until I come again, I am with you always until the end of the age. So in the big, broad view of history and the flow of the world and politics and rulers and kings and trials and tribulations and troubles and uncertainties, the firstborn is coming and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And in the little things of your life that are scary and difficult and overwhelming and kind of gnarly, he's there. And he wants to rule and reign. And the last thing that we read is, and let all the angels of God worship him. When he comes, the angels of God will worship him. Now, can I have one more minute? That's another quotation from the Old Testament. Let's just read it, because this is exactly what would have come to the mind of these Hebrew Christians. When he said, and let all the angels of God worship him, they would have thought exactly of the context of where this came from, Psalm 97. We'll just read it and be done. We're gonna read it and you get ready to worship. Psalm 97. By the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation, they change that word worship. Proskaneo in, in the Greek, it means to worship. They change it and they give it an English translation of obeisance, which means simply deferential respect. They say that when Jesus comes again, the angels will show him deferential respect. They'll say, oh, good show. Actually, they say that it already happened in 1914. They changed the Bible. Next time they knock on your door, you've got some ammunition. The word there is worship. And, and, and when they challenge you on that, they say, then, then go ahead and take their Bible from them and say, well, let's look at the context. Let's go to Psalm 97 and see what it's talking about. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let all the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Kind of sounds like Revelation 19. His lightnings lit up the world. Sounds like Matthew 24, the second coming. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. There's a quotation that's taken into Hebrews 1.6. Worship Him, all you gods. God simply means spiritual beings or supernatural powers. It's rendered angels in Romans 1. Worship Him, all you supernatural powers. Angels, fallen or not fallen, worship Him again. The whole God of the universe, something speaking about him in Psalm 97 is applied to the person of Jesus Christ. You show that to the Jehovah's Witness, you too will very realize, you realize very quickly you're talking about a different Jesus. They will say you're talking about the same Jesus. You're talking about a different Jesus. Same thing with Mormons. This is a God of all the universe and the person of Jesus Christ. Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord, for thou art the Lord most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Hate evil ye who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked, even Nero. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteousness and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. And that is exactly what would have come to the mind of those frightened Hebrew Christians on that day when they were gathered in a room fearing for their lives and they unrolled the scroll and they read there, when the firstborn son comes, all the angels will worship him and they would realize we've got the right king in Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. It's so good. It's so right. And Lord, help those of us that are in that situation that these Hebrew Christians were in, where we started to fall back into some old things. We've lost perhaps the vision of your glory. Somehow, have lost sight of your splendor and your grandeur. Lord, help us. Forgive us if we're relying on anything else. We've built for us some sort of safety net some sort of spiritual false insurance policy. Help us, Lord. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Your name is the name of every name. There is no God beside you. Lord, our hearts are often idolatrous. I know mine is. So easily distracted and swayed and enamored with other things. Help us. There's nothing else that's gonna get us through this life but you, Jesus. No one else that can deliver us to the next life but you, Jesus. Give us more of you. Reveal yourself to us. Draw near to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Manifest the sweetness of Christ in the heart of the Father in this place. If you guys need help today, the prayer team is here. If you want to bow before this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords, you can do that.